Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest Mark Leverage Magic podcast. The latest issue of Magic Scene is just out, and it's the one for March, issue 97. And for that issue, I put together an article called Serial Winners, in which I took a look at what it takes to win a magic competition at a high level, not just once, but more than once on multiple occasions, because there are some, um, I think, amazing people who have managed to do just that. The three people I approached and who responded to my contact were Mark Oberon, Edward Hilsom and Sean Farquhar. And all three of them were very generous with their time and with their advice. One of the things that Mark Oberon said I found particularly interesting, and it's the reason for me mentioning it in the podcast, because he said, I feel there's a real art to being helped. Now, Mark is one of these performers who has always sought advice from his magical peers on everything from major things to very fine adjustments. Uh, he likes to get into the detail of magic that he performs and anything that he feels he can do to improve it, he will. But often it requires him, of course, to ask other people their opinion. And his view was that there are, as he says, there's an art to being helped. And it comes from both sides. From the one side, the person giving the advice. Well, first of all, of course, that person has to be someone who you respect. If you ask the advice of somebody who you think doesn't have the experience or who volunteers the advice worse without being asked when they clearly don't have the experience, then that can be a very uh, redundant experience for you as the performer. You are being told things that you simply wouldn't probably agree with or which are not well thought through. So the first thing to do is to make sure that when you ask somebody's opinion that the person you're asking has the experience and the knowledge to give you a meaningful reply and whose judgment you therefore will respect and be able to use their comments. But the other thing and the other way that he was also looking at it was from the person receiving the advice. Because it's very easy, I think, when you're working intensely on an act or, on a, or even just on a trick and you ask somebody's advice, sometimes you've gone through a lot of intellectual pain in order to get to the point that you are now showing them. And if they start to criticise it, then it's easy for you to become defensive and you feel, well, I, I don't want to hear this. Uh, I, I don't want to hear the criticism that this person is giving me. I've put so much effort into this. What does he know? You know, so you're not in the right mood to receive the advice. And if you're in the wrong mood, then you won't take that advice or you won't look at the advice enough to see whether it is relevant or not. And I thought that was very interesting because I think he's very, very true that that you can be, I say you, one, if you ask somebody's opinion about something, it is really difficult sometimes to hear something that perhaps you don't really want to hear. And it's only in the perhaps mulling it over for 24 hours, you think to yourself, hmm, yeah, maybe they are right. Maybe I do talk too much, perform that too fast, need to change the colour of my, of my outfit that I'm wearing or whatever it might be. And sometimes this can be a painful realisation that and somebody else is right because you have put so much effort into getting to that point in the first place and it kind of feels, oh, no, I can't change it all now. But this is what marks out the people who are successful at a high level, not just once but repeatedly, I think.
It's that they, if they do take advice, they're very good at listening and accepting it, or not necessarily accepting it just because somebody said it, but being accepting of the advice initially and then going away with that advice. And rather than putting someone off by saying, oh, no, I thought of that. Oh, no, that'll never work. Then Mark's attitude is, well, you should be welcoming. Oh, thanks very much. Oh, that's really interesting. Even if you don't intend in the fullness of time to take on the advice that's been given, to discourage people by being too dismissive too quickly is counterproductive. And if you're going to be like that, then he would say, well, what are you asking for then? You know, you really don't want to hear the answer. And if you're not going to encourage people to give it, then why are you asking in the first place? Just get on with it yourself. So I, he's right. There is, an, there is an art to being helped, to accepting advice. And I suppose that's where the, the top people mark themselves out, that if they do ask it, they are good at taking that advice and doing something meaningful with it. Recently, I was considering trick endings because it suddenly occurred to me that tricks, generally speaking, fall into certain types of categories in the way, in terms of the way that they finish. And the more I thought about it, the more I started to identify what these various endings might be. But there are probably loads more, but off the top of my head and in fairly quick order, I managed to think of six or seven that were different types of trick endings, some of which are better than others. And I thought it might be interesting for me just to share them with you to see whether you can think of any more and to see whether you think actually some of the tricks that you do fall into one category, but there's, by a bit of judicious tweaking, you could turn them into a better category of ending just by thinking about it. So in no particular order, I suppose, the first one uh, that I would talk about would be the anticipated ending. And this is basically where you, you sort of set up an impossible scenario, which you then, against all the odds, actually achieve. So what is meant by this is that you are telling the audience in advance, basically, what's going to happen in the trick. A lot of mental effects are like this. And then... This gives the opportunity for the audience to consider how utterly amazing and impossible it would be if you achieved this. And their anticipation is already high. You then go through the process of the trick itself. And at the end, you have a successful conclusion. You have achieved what you said you would do. So that's what an anticipated ending would be, where they know in advance what you're going to do and you manage to do it. Now, the complete opposite to that, of course, is the surprise ending. And, of course, many, many magic tricks have a twist in the tail or a surprise at the end. It's a totally unexpected and sudden occurrence, usually. And it's a very effective way of making people laugh and instantaneously applaud. In a way, it is the complete opposite of the anticipated ending because the finale of a surprise ending shouldn't, if it's to be a true surprise, be anticipated at all. And a lot of tricks, I mean, you think about classic tricks such as, let's say, the cups and balls. The appearance of the, the large low balls at the end after a sequence with only using small balls is a complete surprise. It's a surprise ending. Nobody, and that's why it gets such a strong reaction. Same with the chop cup. You know, a double production of potato and a lemon from a chop cup is a surprise ending because people don't see it coming. And a lot of tricks, as I say, do, do fall into that category.
But then there are some tricks which I would class as surprise, as having a surprise anticipated ending. In other words, a combination of the first two that I've just mentioned. This is where you apparently set out for the audience in advance what you're going to do in the trick, but that when you get to the end of the trick, you kind of change the rules, as it were. You turn the tables on them and you do something completely unexpected. It's a way of, I suppose, in a sense, increasing the surprise because the audience is expecting one finish, but what they actually get is something completely different. It, it's a bit like, I suppose, sucker tricks would fall into that category. I've never been a fan of sucker tricks, but that's how they work, isn't it? You, through what you do, what you say, and the way you perform, you lead the audience down the garden path of them thinking, ah, oh, I can see what's going to happen here, or I know how this is done. And then right at the last moment, you turn the tables on them and show, well, no, actually, it's, it's not what you thought. So that's what I would class as a surprise anticipated ending. The next one is a rolling crescendo ending. And this is one that's often used by competition stage acts, for instance. They build as they get towards the finale of their act, a succession of usually visual, incredibly magical happenings come one after the other in quick succession. You know, producing fans of cards, it gets quicker. The cards suddenly start to get larger. Suddenly there are two massive fans of cards appear. And then maybe there's an explosion and cards fall down from the, from the, from the ceiling or whatever. In other words, lots of magical finishes, one after the other, come in quick succession. And it's a, when it's done skillfully, and it's, it's a very effective way to get a tremendous reaction, particularly, I think, with stage magic, from our audience, and often will result in a standing ovation if, if the surprises are surprising enough. So this sort of rolling crescendo, where it gets one thing after the other after the other, is a very effective way, I think, to, to make a huge impression at the end of an act. And then there's the, the slow burn ending. Uh, this is where the performer sort of reveals a series of unknown facts that creates an impossible seeming situation. So an example of that would be a, a mental act where there's been a box or an envelope strung up high over the stage. And at the end of the show, the entire show, that box or envelope is taken down and some paper is taken out and a spectator reads out what's written apparently on the paper that's been up in full view the whole time. And the performer has written something that predicts several of the key events that have happened throughout the show. Now, this is, it is a kind of surprise, but it's not a sudden surprise. It's a slow burn ending because as the thing is read out and the impossibility of all the matches of the things that actually happened are seen recorded apparently in advance on the paper, the audience goes away and is left thinking about that afterwards. And then, he, and then he did this. And how did earth did he know that that spectator's name was going to be Shirley and, and so on and so forth. So it's a slow burn because it's, it's something that will leave something for people to think about, something to mull over after the event. And then the final one that, I, and I'm sure there are many more, but the final one that I want to point out is the petering out ending. Unfortunately, a huge number of magic tricks fall into this category. Basically, it's a trick that proceeds through a logical sequence to 
a successful conclusion. Yeah, that, that, that's it. So, for instance, the girl comes out, she lies on a, on a board, she's levitated into the air, and she comes down again, she gets off the board. All right, it's no, no particular surprise, it's a magical effect. You go through doing it, but there's nothing particularly, well, it is special in one way, but not in, in, in when you think about all the other types of ending that you could have. Another example perhaps would be where, again, with a stage illusion, a box, a girl gets into the box, swords are put through, the swords are taken out and she gets out unharmed. Now, those, those tricks are, are perfectly fine in themselves, but they kind of, they just kind of finish without any da-da moment. Now, you can make those moments, of course, into something special because in the case of the levitation, if you do an asra, then the girl levitates and then the cloth is pulled away and she's vanished. That then puts a surprise ending in. Or with the, um, the box with the swords going in, you could do like the Moretti's used to do, where Hans Moretti was in, in the cardboard box, the swords were put through, and when the swords were taken out and he came out, he was completely changing what he was wearing and he had a wig on and he had clown makeup on and a clown's nose and a clown's outfit. That was a way of adding an extra level of surprise. Oh, and um, there is just one more. I almost don't like to, uh, to put this one in, but I think I'm going to. It's the so what ending. Uh, and this probably is the most common of all the endings. It's where the four kings change into the four aces. There's no particular reason. It's not much of a surprise. It's just magicians kind of doing what magicians do. And it just sort of starts and goes along and then finishes. And the audience is left at the end thinking, OK, yeah, right. So what? So that's another type of ending too, isn't it? So there you are, some endings. I'm sure there are more. If there are, let me know, because it'd be interesting to know what other types of endings you can think of. I've mentioned before in these podcasts about the CCC, the Cumbrian Conjurers Collective, which is a tongue-in-cheek name for four of us. We're long-standing magical friends over many decades. And we, the four of us, get together whenever we can and have magic sessions. And they're tremendous fun. We uh, get through an awful lot, both of performance and also just discussion of magic. And of course, for the last year, we've not been able to meet. We have had a, a Zoom version, which lasted all day, which was fun. And then recently, we, we had another shorter session of about three hours in which we actually created a theme. It was suggested that why don't each of us find a magical clip online, whether it's on YouTube or wherever, that we like or that we don't like and then we would all watch it and then we would talk about it and it proved to be really really successful we all chose very different types of clips uh, just as it happens and it was it was fascinating because some of the clips we agreed certain aspects of it that we either liked or didn't like and others we had a divided opinion but the point was it created a lot of conversation and a lot of sort of things came out of it, opinions and thoughts about the performance of magic. And one of the things that came out of that, I, I'd chosen a Billy McComb um, TV extract. I think it was from The Best of Magic, from one of Duncan Trillo's um, ones that he puts up on, on, online. And um, it was interesting because there's at one point where Billy McComb is in the audience 
And I don't know how old Billy was at the time. He was probably, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s, possibly. I'm not quite sure. But that sort of that sort of end of, of life, if you like, that end of his life. And he was in the audience doing his coin in bottle effect. And at one point he pours the contents of a bottle into a glass and he gives the glass to an older lady and says something along the lines of, well, don't drink it all at once or, you know, you may need to nip out to the loo effectively. He didn't use those words, but that's the implication. And the reason I mention this is because we, we all realised that this remark was funny coming from him, somebody of his age talking to some an older person in the audience because they know that they need to go to the loo more often. And that's what makes it funny. It wasn't rude. It wasn't insulting or anything like that. It was almost observational humour. And it could only be, do be done because of the age that that he was and that the spectator was. Which led us to discuss a little bit about um, age-relevant lines and patter themes. Because there are situations where you see a performer perhaps misjudge slightly. He's too young to be using a particular line or patter theme, or he's too old to be using it. And who that, that line or that presentation is directed towards, that combination of ages can also be wrong. So it's, it's okay for, a, let's say, a middle-aged man to have a mild bit of flirting with a lady in her 70s. The lady in her 70s would really enjoy that, and, and that's absolutely fine. But I did see another performer who tried to do a similar sort of slightly flirtatious thing with a much younger person, and it, it just, he was too young, and she was younger, although not as young as him, and it, it just felt completely wrong. It just didn't work. And I think it's easy sometimes for us to to forget that there are certain things that we, depending on the age that we are, shouldn't be saying to other people of other ages if we don't wish to strike a chord that really isn't quite right. And I'm not really I'm not talking about sexist lines or anything like that. It's just more that, that it's not appropriate in a broader sense. Whereas if you get it right, as you get older, and I found this definitely, as I've got older, I can become, when I'm performing, a bit cheekier. I can say things that I can get away with because I am older that I could not have got away with 20 years ago because it would have just seemed a bit forward or, or not appropriate for my age. Whereas when you get a bit older, you can say certain things. And, and as a result of that, you can get a lot of comedy that wasn't available to you perhaps years ago. So I think looking at lines and patter, patter lines and themes of presentation and matching it to your age and the age of the audience can be a very worthwhile thing to consider. This month I'm releasing a new Premier E routine. It's called Casino Cash. I actually put it into the Vintage Vault for E Club Pro members to enjoy last month. But I'm also really releasing it for those who are not members of eClub Pro as a separate standalone marketed item. I was looking for a way to produce some coins, four coins, that I could then go straight into a coin matrix with. 
And there are lots of different ways for, to achieve this, but most of them require at least some, if not a lot, of sleight of hand. And I was thinking it would be really nice if you could find a way of producing four coins, not just one at a time, but actually all together at the same time without using any slights. And Casino Cash allows you to do that. There's a deck of cards which you, you, you can freely display, you, you shuffle it, you, you spread it and a spectator chooses, touches any four cards which you take out. The, um, the cards are shown, they're fanned and put on the table, the rest of the deck is spread across the table and when you lift up the fan there are now four coins underneath the fan of cards. There's a, there's a demo of this on my website and so if you go and watch it you'll see how clean it is and, and there is literally no sleight of hand at all. It's not entirely self-contained but you don't have to palm anything or do anything difficult at all. So um, it, as I say this is a Premier e-routine. A Premier e-routine means it's a downloadable PDF instru written instructions which also have a link which will take you to additional online performance and explanation footage as well. Price of that is £10, it's called Casino Cash and it, as I say it makes a wonderful lead into uh, to a matrix because you've got four coins and you've got four cards and you're ready to go aren't you? That's Casino Cash and that's a new release from Mark Leverage Magic this month. Now I have to say that I do feel that I have shown remarkable restraint so far in this podcast, not to mention COVID. But I'm afraid all that good work's now going to go out of the window because I've got a couple of things I want to talk about that are both COVID related. The first is the effect that COVID has had on those of us who are performing online via Zoom or other platforms, uh, the effect it's having on our relationships with our audiences. Uh, I was, this was brought to my mind because I've been watching a lot of Premier League soccer and of course the players for the last, mainly for the last year, have had to play their matches in empty stadia. A really surreal experience to be surrounded by let's say 50,000 empty seats where everything that the players shout or say echoes eerily around the stadium. And it seems to me that some, some of the players have benefited from this because without a crowd they're egging them on or insulting them, they've actually found it easier to perform. And others have, I think, struggled to get their enthusiasm and motivation up to perform to the highest level consistently. There's certainly been a marked change in the relationship between the home team and their crowd and the away team that there have been a lot more away match matches sorry matches that where the away team has won than normal because the crowd is not there egging the home team on and because of this it made me think about performance and performers if you've been doing any zoom entertainment it is interactive up to a point but it tends to be interactive to, at the most, one person at a time. Whereas normally when we do a live show, of course that's not the case, is it? We're interacting with a whole, could be an entire audience, all at the same time. You're getting reaction and you're getting comments, you're getting laughter and you're feeding off the 
the the atmosphere that the the whole audience is creating as you perform whereas when you're performing on zoom it, it's it is a bit surreal you you feel like sometimes you're talking to yourself you're in a room that may be familiar to you but the the react and you might be able to see some of the spectators who are watching you and see see they're, they're probably going to be muted but you can see their reaction they're clapping or whatever but it is a, a, a very strange experience. You feel there's a disconnect between between you and the people who are watching you. And it's much more difficult for the audience, unless you specifically ask a member of the audience to name a card or whatever it might be, comments that when you're doing close-up magic, for instance, in a strolling or table hopping situation, little funny comments that you get that you can then turn around and feed off and make a load of fun out of, and have fun with people as a result of what somebody else has said, all of this suddenly disappears because there is a certain restraint most of the time for people who are watching on Zoom because they are slightly disconnected from the performing experience too. They don't feel like they have to react. They don't feel like they can or even will want to say something because things move on. Whereas when you're sitting, they're sitting right next to you they can say something instantly, you can hear it and you can respond. So just like the footballers, we too are suffering perhaps a little from this lack of interaction. Magic is incredibly interactive for most of us. When we perform, we use audience members all the time. We rely on what they say and what they do and how they are to get humour in our acts. And much of that has had to be push to one side because it's just not practical it just doesn't work and as a result I think a lot of magic on zoom has become very much I'm the performer I'm going to present some stuff and if you'd like to sit there and watch it that would be great with the occasional obviously dip in name a card as I said so it'll be nice when we do hopefully light at the end of the tunnel now that it will be nice when we get back to performing live to once again be able to feed off the enthusiasm of the of the audience to respond to things that they say to us and to get the energy of the audience, the energy and the excitement, which currently it feels like we're not getting at all. The other COVID related observation that I wanted to make is about show inquiries. Of course, for the last year, because basically I haven't been doing any shows at all. And of course, people know that they can't book anything because they haven't been able to gather anywhere inside and at times even outside to have an event. So the number of inquiries that have been coming in has dribbled away to virtually nothing. And even those ones that have come in where some people have been inquiring for, let's say, a wedding next year or even the year after, because we're kind of out of the rhythm, I feel like I'm out of the rhythm of considering shows and of being keen to get shows. I feel really demotivated and sometimes I can't even be bothered to reply. Now, these are not direct inquiries through my website or anything like this. I'm talking about things I use Add to Event, for example, the online uh, sort of agency, if you like. So I don't have to reply to those because they're not personal to me. But I sort of look and I find myself um, finding reasons that I don't want to actually have to bother to respond to it. Oh, that's a long way away. I don't think I'll bother with that one. Or, oh, 
June next year? No, I don't think I can manage that. I'll probably be on holiday and this sort of thing. And it's all because I feel like I'm I'm out of the rhythm of doing this sort of thing. And also I feel very demotivated because the few inquiries that I have responded to have come to nothing. So I'm thinking, you know, are these people making serious inquiries? Are they just putting the feelers out? But actually, they're not really going to be able to. Have, I mean, there have been one or two that I haven't bothered to respond to because people were inquiring for events that they actually couldn't hold. It was for last year in times when you weren't allowed to have an event. They were trying to book a magician for an event. And you think, really? I mean, surely that can't be right, can it? So I suppose that coupled with the fact that inquiries have had to be for so far ahead think crikey I might be retired by then for all I know so I have felt very demotivated however now as things start to loosen up and as we getting dates for when we will be able to have events and where perhaps shows will become relevant again I, I realize that I have got to get my head around the fact that these are proper inquiries and I can't just keep batting them away if I want to work at all and so uh, I'm going to have to gird my loins and re-motivate myself and start doing a proper job of getting these uh, inquiries answered. Well, there we are. That's another podcast done for this month. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the various things I've talked about and that you will feel sufficiently excited about coming back next month for some more. In the meantime, have a good month. Bye for now.